You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. Welcome to Smart Sex, Smart Love. We're talking about sex goes beyond the taboos and talking about love goes beyond the honeymoon. I'm Dr. Joe Court. Thanks for tuning in. Welcome to Smart Sex, Smart Love. We're talking about sex goes beyond the taboo and talking about love goes beyond the honeymoon. I'm Dr. Joe Court. And today with me, we have a guest uh, who I'm very happy to have here. I'm a very fan of his work. I've gone to many of his, if not most of his workshops, Dr. Barry McCarthy. Barry is a tenured professor of psychology at American University, a diplomat in clinical sex in, in clinical psychology, and a certified sex therapist and a certified couples therapist. He has published more than 100 professional articles, 26 book chapters, and 14 books, including Rekindling Desire, Enhancing Couple Sexuality, and Contemporary Male Sexuality. Barry has presented more than 450 professional workshops in the United States and internationally. In 2016, he received the Masters and Johnson Award for Lifetime Contributions to the Sexuality Field. His clinical expertise focuses on integrating sex therapy strategies and techniques into individual and couples therapy, assessment and treatment of the most common male and female sexual problems. Welcome, Barry. Great to be here. Barry, every time I think about you, I think about the one time because I'd gone to so many of your workshops and you looked up and you said, you again. <laughs> and I was like, yes, I can't get enough of you. I, I learn, you know, I learn and I want to relearn and you're, you're research based and there's so much value to what you have to offer that I'm, I'm glad you're here. Right. I'm glad to be here and I appreciate what you're saying. Yeah, no problem. Thank you. All right. So let's just get right started. Um, you talk about sexual paradox and the impact of stopping sex. Can you talk about that? Well, you know, one of the things that really fascinates me is about most couples want first a satisfying relationship, second, a secure relationship, which is totally different than stable. And then the third is they want it to be sexual. That sex plays that healthy 15 to 20% role in a relationship, whether you're married or partnered, straight or gay. And that is it allows you to feel um, the desired and desirable, and it energizes your bond. And that so the paradox is that healthy sex plays that small integral role, but sexual conflict, sexual, sexual dysfunction, but especially sexual avoidance plays an inordinately powerful negative role and really tears at the relationship and often causes it to divorce. What people don't realize is that when, when you get divorced early in a relationship, the major cause of that divorce is sex problems. And the most common time that couples stop being sexual is not after 20, 30, 40 years. It's those first five years. They have a luminous face. They begin as a great sexual couple, and they never find their sexual style. And it really has a terribly negative impact. So good sex cannot save a bad relationship. But bad sex can destroy a loving relationship. So that's sexual avoidance. Yeah, really important. So good sex cannot save a bad relationship, but bad sex can destroy a relationship. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the the most important issue, you know, the the mantra that I try to sell to clients and to uh, people at workshops is a new sexual mantra of desire, pleasure, eroticism, and satisfaction. And of those four dimensions, 
Desire is the most important. When I was a young clinician, I used to believe that the big thing was arousal and orgasm. And I still love arousal and orgasm. Mm -hmm. But the really big thing is desire. That you want to be able to anticipate being sexual, feel that you deserve sex to work in your life and relationship, even if everything isn't perfect and you're not perfect. And this sense of freedom and choice. That that's what really facilitates desire is positive anticipation of getting together. So you're talking about um, planning for sex, which most people don't like to do. They don't. The big emphasis is spontaneous desire. I, again, love spontaneous desire. But for most people, especially people who've been together two years or longer, most sexual desire, not just for women, but for men too, is responsive sexual desire. In other words, the desire grows out of the interaction, physical and emotional, rather than a spontaneous erection or feeling really horny. You know, I love movies, Joe. But in movies, sex is always spontaneous and dramatic. That's not true for the average couple. Uh The average couple who have jobs, kids, houses, connections, friendships, much of the time, Desire is this concept that bridges to sexual desire. What allows you personally and relationally to be open to a sexual encounter? So I think what's really important, everything is, but when you go back to responsive means, I may not have walking around desire, but once we get started, my desire will show up during my behavior with my partner. Is that right? Absolutely. Absolutely. That the essence of healthy sexuality is giving and receiving pleasure-oriented touching. And you can enter into a connection where your um, desire is neutral or zero. But as you engage in touching and being touched, and as you're aware of your feelings and the partner's feelings, that's when you feel desire. So this is for both men and women. Pardon? That's right. It's always been developed with women, especially women over 30. Yeah. But it holds for both women and men, especially... For men after about age 40. You know, the major, one of the things that people don't believe, they say can't be true, is that when it comes to heterosexual couples, whether again partnered or or, uh, married, it's men who choose to stop being sexual. And they choose it because they've lost spontaneous erections. And they, they tie desire to spontaneous erections rather than to touch. I love this. When you say this, because most people think women are the reason sex stops. Well, what is true is that in adult women, one out of three adult women reports low or inhibited sexual desire. And I think what's happened with that is they've fallen into a trap of no longer anticipating and sex not being pleasure oriented. They get into this power struggle with their partner about intercourse or nothing. And when it's intercourse or nothing, eventually nothing wins. And one of the most powerful of all the sex therapy concepts is the concept of redefining what you mean by sex. I love intercourse. I want to be 100% clear of that. Whether you're 30 or you're 70, intercourse is a great, great experience. But sex cannot be defined only by intercourse. Define sex by pleasure, sensual touch, erotic scenarios, playful scenarios. That's what keeps sexual desire alive in an ongoing relationship. 
You know, one of the saddest things that I know in the sex field is that when you ask about 60% of people, they will say their best sex was the first six months of the relationship. Yes. And to me, they never developed that couple sexual style, that inviting touching, that accepted both. You know, the best sex is synchronous and mutual. In other words, both of you have high levels of desire, high levels of pleasure, high levels of eroticism, and high levels of satisfaction. Mutual sex, synchronous sex is the best. But most sexual encounters among most couples who've been together two years or longer are asynchronous, better for one partner than the other. And that's healthy. That's not unhealthy. As long as the asynchronous sex is in at the expense of the partner or the relationship, Mm -hmm. you really want to embrace asynchronous sex, even if it's not politically correct, which it's Uh, not. You know, I've had the pleasure recently of being on TikTok. I've only been on for a few weeks. And uh, the public can't stand this when when they hear that. I mean, when you're talking to therapists, we all get it. But when you start talking to the general public, they're like, no, this is not right. Sex should be automatic. We should be able to have what we had in the first six months throughout the entire relationship. What do you say to those couples? What I say to those couples is be a wise couple, not an emotional couple. Mm. Wise couples are able to figure out how sexuality integrates into their lives and relationships, especially couples that are married or kids or been together two years or longer. The issue is how you integrate intimacy. It's one concept of being close and warm and open. Non-demand pleasuring, which includes sensual and playful touch. And eroticism. And it's a real challenge. And the other thing that people won't buy at all, whether on TikTok or any place else, is the idea among happily married, sexually functional folks, 5 to 15% of their encounters are dissatisfying or dysfunctional. It's normal to have lousy sex on occasion. You don't need to panic. You don't need to apologize. I think that really motivates and empowers people where they really own their sexuality. So let that goes into your good enough sex model. Good enough sex model. Can you talk about that? Yes. So that was developed actually by my esteemed colleague who was deceased in 2012, Mike Metz. And what, what he said is that Sex is not about an individual pass-fail test. For males, the typical pass-fail test is erection and intercourse. For females, it's having an orgasm, especially during intercourse. What he said is that sex is about sharing pleasure. And the best sex, again, is mutual and synchronous. But you've got to be open and enjoy a range of sexual experiences, including sensual touching, um, playful scenarios and erotic non-intercourse scenarios. All of those are sexual. Using intercourse is the only measure. You get into that terrible power struggle between men and women, especially, that is intercourse or nothing, rather than having a variable, flexible sexual repertoire. And, you know, the science of sex, especially for older couples, couples over 60, the more they buy into good enough sex, the more they stay sexual in their 60s, 70s, and 80s. Mm. Men especially who cling to the old definition of erection, intercourse, and orgasm, and it's a pass-fail individual test, they stop being sexual often mm-hmm. in their 50s and 60s and sometimes way before that. Wow. So that's so important information that people don't know. And, and even if they hear it, they don't, especially men. Women buy good enough sex. Good enough sex was actually developed for men who were concerned about erections. 
Women buy it because it fits in with their sexual socialization. It fits into their lived experiences. For men, the notion is you never fail at sex. And that, you know, my best example of that with men is that 80 to 85% of men, men believe their penis is smaller than average. Can't be true statistically or logically. But it's this notion that says, I'm never good enough. It's a theme you hear over and over again. I'm never good enough. And they'll never share that with their friends, but that's the underlying fear. Why do you think 80 to 85% of men think their penises are small? I think it's because men always brag about sex. They over-exaggerate. And there's this notion that says, you really don't know what somebody else is going on in their life sexually. Yeah. But you do hear their bragging. You do hear their jokes. You do hear their one-upping each other. Yes. You do and hear the masculinity is about control and power. It's right. A, and it's, in porn, the guy's always got a bigger dick, right? Whether right. it's angled or he's already. And as little boys, when we're in locker rooms or we see our dads, the adults have bigger penises. We look down, we only have a small one. And that gets imprinted, I think, don't you? Yes, I do think it. And nobody ever challenged it because it, the, if you challenge it with other, if you challenge it with women, they'll talk to you about it. If you challenge with other men, they say you're a wimp. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you, right. You're not good enough. You're not strong enough. You don't have enough control. You don't have enough power. So for the people listening, okay, so now you've brought up male erections and you know how that's so important to so many men. So then the question is, are Viagra and Cialis standalone interventions for erectile dysfunction? You know, Viagra and Cialis are very good medications for most men. But they've caused more non-sexual relationships since 1998 than anything else in history. Wow. What? Because nobody ever says to the man how you integrate the medication into your couple sexual style. And nobody says to the man about good enough sex that 85% of the time, it's sex is going to flow from comfort to pleasure to arousal, to erotic flow, to intercourse and orgasm, which is wonderful. But when it doesn't flow, the man tends to say, I'm the only Viagra failure in all of the world. Right. Rather than saying that 85% of the time it flows to intercourse, and when it doesn't flow, without apologizing, without panicking, you say to yourself, you say to your partner, this is going to be a non-intercourse night, but we can have fun. I love that. Yeah. Right. Now, again, that's not to be politically correct, that it sounds good on a podcast or a TikTok, but it's so opposed to traditional male sexuality. 100%. But it's not opposed to traditional female sexuality. No, right. They can, right. By its nature, women understand that sex is variable and flexible, and they embrace that. Yes. I think the key issue with women and sexual desire is finding her own sexual voice, especially her erotic voice, and that she is a equitable sexual partner. She's not a second-class sexual partner. Mm, that's so think, well said. And the challenge from, right, we wrote a book about that, mm-hmm. about finding your sexual voice about female sexuality. It's so one of the least uh, we've ever written books about, which is a shame because I think it's a really good book mm-hmm. for, for adult women. Um but I think the challenge for men is to be nice to their penis, to accept their penis for what it is rather than putting it on a 
every experience is a pass fail experience. So you know, no, I love it. It isn't. You, it isn't a standalone intervention. You've got to integrate it into your couple sexuality. What do you think of this new term? Instead of erectile dysfunction, erectile disappointment. I think that's a good term. I think right. that makes good sense. Right, because it's not. It, it goes against what you're saying happens. Is they make a big deal about it, and then that big deal happens the next night, and the next night, and the next night, and the penis says, "I'm out of here." That's too much pressure. Right. Well, they basically lost the core issue. The man has lost the core issue, and that sex is about giving and receiving pleasure or in the touch. You know, the last book we're going to ever write will be published in the fall. It's called Couple Sexuality After Sixty, in that. Couples not only can be sexual in their 60s, but in their 70s, their 80s. And I tell my older couples, and I'm an older person too, that investing in good enough sex is better than putting $200,000 in fidelity investments. Mm. It's really going to improve the quality of your life. But you've got to accept sexuality as it really is, not as it was in your 20s. That's so well said. I, I I feel like each one of these things you keep saying are could be its own podcast. I know people are thinking, okay, well, what if we don't have sexual desire? How do you get it back? Okay, well, wait, let me ask you this, because this is my question, and my students always have this question. What if we never had sexual desire from the beginning, but we loved each other? Can we get sexual desire later? For the great majority of people, you can develop sexual desire. And that the way to do that is to focus on these psychosexual skill exercises about desire directly rather than indirectly. And that is you've got to first build comfort with touching and being touched. Second, attraction is something that you can enhance. And the exercise has each person saying what they value about the other. And then being able to make one to three requests that would make this partner more attractive. Okay. And then the third exercise is about trust, finding a trust position where you feel safe and secure and you're physically connected, ideally in the nude. And then the last one is the most important and the hardest to get people to do, but it's so valuable. And that is find your preferred scenario, your preferred scenario about intimacy, your preferred scenario that incorporates pleasure, your preferred scenario about eroticism, and your preferred scenario about satisfaction and satisfaction. I love orgasm, but satisfaction is more than orgasm. Mm. Wait, you know, I've done good. this with lots of folks. I've never worked with any person, any couple where they have the exact same scenarios. Yeah. I like what you, what you just said. Satisfaction is more important than orgasm because the culture has it the opposite way. Right. No, I know that. that you know, again, I'm a great fan of orgasm. <laughs> but the essence of satisfaction is you feel good about yourself as a sexual woman or man, and you feel energized as a sexual couple. Now, let me just throw in one thing. I'm always struck by how complex sexuality is, that one size never fits all. There are people, it's probably one to a half, one and a half to two percent of women and about half a percent of men who their genuine sexual orientation is asexual that they don't value either an erotic charge, nor do they value a genuine emotional attachment. For those people, they need to accept that that's that's their authentic sexual self, and then talk to their partner about how to integrate that into their lives and relationship. But for 95% of people, you can develop 
and reinforce a new sexual desire. Unless, and there's always, that's always this thing about complexity. I believe that as many as seven to eight percent of people marry somebody specifically for anti-erotic reasons. In other words, they marry somebody because they're not turned on by that. Mm-hmm. That tends to be very, very complex. But for the, again, the great majority, sexual desire can be built and reinforced. So really what you're talking about in, in everything, and, and this is controversial too, and it's and people think that you're a renegade if you talk about this, that couples should talk about the way they have sex and how they want it. In, on TikTok, people are like, what are you talking about? We shouldn't have to. It should just happen. Right. And the worst time to talk sex is when you're nude in bed after a negative experience. <laughs> people say and do things that really cause great harm. It's and I'm so serious true. about that, Joe. Yes. I've sat in my clinical office where a woman has said to the man, if you can't keep it up, why do you bother to stay alive? Yeah, That uh, is really devastating. Or the man says to the woman, I thought you were a new sexual woman. If I knew who you really were, I never would have married you. Uh, that caused so much damage. Yeah, it really does. The time to talk sex is either in a clinician's office or the day before a sexual experience. When you're yes. Oh, I like that, the day before. Yes. You have one glass of wine, not a bottle. And where you are very clear about what you value about your partner in a relationship and make specific requests that says the next time we're sexual, let's do this in terms of how to build a bridge to desire. Let's do this in terms of pleasuring. Let's do this in terms of erotic scenarios and techniques. Can I also share with you, Joe, one of the things that, that really drives me totally nuts? Go, yes. About the field. And that is there's three kinds of arousal. There's partner interaction arousal, which is far and away the most common. There's self-entrancement arousal, where you take turns and the receiving partner really is aware, but just allowing themselves to take it in. And the third type is called role enactment arousal, abusing uh, something external, whether it's vibrators, whether it's mirrors, whether it's paddles. All three of them are perfectly acceptable. But almost all the writing about eroticism is based on role enactment arousal, where the reality is for the great, great majority of people, it's partner interaction arousal or self-entrancement arousal that is, is what's erotic. So I always tell my folks, make sure you can integrate your erotic scenarios and techniques into your couple sexual style. Mm-hmm. And all of this stuff is in all your books. I've read them. And <laughs> right. I mean, pretty much even sometimes things are repeated, but in different contexts. I think it's really I'm a very repetitive guy. It's no, repetitive. no. But I mean, I think it's important. And, and then you say it with different paradigms. Right. Right. Well, you know, by far the best of our books for couples is enhancing couple sexuality. The best of our books for people in non-sexual relationships is rekindling desire. And the third edition is so much better especially the relapse prevention parts. And then the last one is the one that came out last week about a new model of male sexuality that focuses on acceptance and a pleasure orientation and really confronts the old double standard and confronts the pass-fail performance model. I can't wait to read that one because that's my, my main uh, interest these days is male sexuality and, um, you know, talking about it and people, you know, giving voice to it because men don't, don't talk about it and they don't talk about it well when they do. And you're giving voice to it through your books. And I think that's important. And they especially don't do well when they talk to male physicians and male friends. 
because there's built into the male sexual socialization of you never admit vulnerabilities. Yeah, right. And the world would be so much better if you could, as a man, admit vulnerabilities. Totally opposite of what's going on politically. Well, I'm really... I agree, and I'm really happy that you're going to be speaking for us. I think Friday, right on modern at Modern Sex Therapy Institutes, isn't it? Right. It's about rekindling desire uh, with uh, Rachel Newman uh, Needle and, and her group. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. I'm so happy to do it, and it's going to be recorded, and people can get it. But where can people find your books? Where can people find you? Well, you know, I have a vulnerability, and that vulnerability is I have a perceptual motor learning disorder, so I can very barely use computers. I can't type, for example. Mm. Um, but you can get it on either Amazon. All the books are on Amazon yep. or the publishers, Rutledge publishers. You can get it in either of those two sources. Okay. Don't try to get it for me because I couldn't show you how to get it. I think it's incredible. I've always thought this about you that some, for someone who can't type uh, has put out so much information electronically. Yeah. It's, I've had to use typist. Yeah. It's, but you know, I'm not ashamed. I, I'm very, I would be a better person if I wasn't didn't have that vulnerability. Yeah. I'm not ashamed of my vulnerability. Right, good. And I think for so many men, when there's any sexual concern, whether it's premature ejaculation, erectile dysfunction, or disappointment, uh, ejaculatory inhibition, they're ashamed of it. Yes. They're ashamed of desire problems. They blame it on their partner rather than turning to the partner and saying, I need you as my intimate friend and my erotic friend. Yes. So many men de-eroticize their partner and de-eroticize the relationship. That's so true. And another thing I'm seeing in my practice is younger men shaming themselves saying, I shouldn't have this problem at 20, 25, you know, and, and the problem isn't, the problem is, is about anxiety and, and not talking about it. Once we get rid of the anxiety and talk about it, their erections come. Right. Well, and it becomes more the good enough sex model of erections rather yes. than fail performance. But you know, for most men, they love spontaneous erection. And I love spontaneous erection. Yeah. And that's how they learn to be sexual in their 20s and 30s. But not all men. For most men, their first sensitizing experience, meaning that they don't get an erection sufficient for intercourse, happens between about 35 and 55 or 60. But once it happens, you don't go back to spontaneous erection. Huh. You need to be a more wise man really understands and accepts his penis and understands its variability and flexibility. Well, we're going to end with that. Thank you so much, Barry, for being on the show. And all this is loaded information. It always is. Um, if you like the show and you want to hear more, uh, please continue listening and follow us on, um, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm on TikTok. I'm on Instagram and Facebook. And all of it is at Dr. Joe Court. And um, uh, have a safe and healthy week. And we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of Smart Sex, Smart Love. I'm Dr. Joe Court, and you can find me on joecourt.com. That's J-O-E-K-O-R-T.com. See you next time.